You know what? I'm going to make a confession here today. I was half expecting Frank to show up at that fucking party. Hi, and welcome to Sex and Whiskey. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we're here today to talk about The Bakra, the 12th episode of season three. The Bakra aired on December 3rd, 2017, and was written by Luke Shellhaas and directed by Charlotte Brandstrom, who also directed last week's episode, Uncharted. All right, let's get this out there. The last episode that Shellhaas wrote, Heaven and Earth, I panned it pretty hard. Jamie was all insane in the hold and calling for mutiny. Claire felt weirdly out of body for most of her story, and nothing made any sense at all. Part of that was transferred insanity from the source material, but a lot of it was just not great writing. Now, this week with the Bakra, I have to tell you, I liked it. The structure was held together by strong goals and a clear antagonist. And while we ended with yet again another cliffhanger, it's clear that this is the aesthetic that Outlander is going for. And you know what? Fine. As long as you tell a good story. And I got to say, I think maybe they did. All right, let's go through the stones. In the Bakra, we open with young Ian's experience being kidnapped and then tossed into a pit on a Jamaican plantation with other scared boys. One by one, they were taken to see the Bakra. They never came back. Young Ian is delivered into the care of an insane naked Scottish lady bathing in blood. She is the Bakra, a.k.a. Jillian Edgars, a.k.a. Galus Duncan, a.k.a. Lotta Verbeek, who chews the scenery as she drugs, seduces, and then rapes young Ian. I'm no virgin. Good. You'll know what to do then. Claire and Jamie arrive in Jamaica and dive into the search for young Ian. First stop, slave market where Claire's horrified outburst ends with her as the owner of a young man named Temeraire, and they ask for his help in locating young Ian. Will you help us? Meanwhile, Galus is on the hunt for a missing sapphire, which her seer, Margaret Campbell, needs to prophesize when the next Scottish king will rise. You'll no get a shilling until your sister's gifts are rendered. Claire and Jamie go to the governor's party with Temeraire so he can inquire about young Ian with the Bruja's slaves. And at the party, they bump into Archibald and Margaret Campbell. What chance that we end up on the same island, eh? <laughs> Galus Duncan, now Abernathy. Of all the gen joints, in all the towns, in all the world. And the new governor, one Lord John Gray. The ghost. They keep coming into our lives, drawn to us the way you... We are drawn to each other. Galus spots Lord John Sapphire and manages to get it into Margaret Campbell's hands, who delivers an enigmatic riddle of a prophecy. A 200-year-old baby. As Jamie and Claire discover that young Ian was taken to Galus's estate, Captain Leonard shows up at the party and carts Jamie away, who shouts one last request back at Claire. Go! Find young Ian! I don't know what it is. Did I just give up much the way I did in the books? Have I just released the old Outlander, which was anchored in romance and Scotland and the Rising, and embraced new Outlander, which is a wild series of unlikely adventures? Have I gone soft in my old age? 
Has my brain just melted under the strain of trying to make sense of it all? I don't know. But I thought the Bakra was kind of fun. Look, it's crazy. I know it's crazy. Lord John Gray and Galus and the Campbells and young Ian all ending up in this one place at this one time to do one more electric slide around the dance floor. All right. It doesn't just strain credulity. It slaps credulity in the face and then flips it off. But there's something about the outright boldness of that flip-off. It somehow resets the stage. What we get from here on out isn't the outlander we're used to. But it's an outlander we can dance to. It's kind of like when the new doctor takes the reins of the TARDIS. The show is just different. But it's not necessarily bad. And now that we have completely left all pretense of believability and sanity behind, this is when Outlander gets, you know, kind of fun. I mean, everything is wild. Everything is on the table. No one gets left behind. Everybody dances. And once you do that, as long as our characters are consistent, which I think in this episode they are, then okay. I'm in. Let's dance. It's no such a bad way to go. There are two basic things that make a story work. Craft and magic. Craft is the structure, the world building, the character work, the conflict. These things come together to properly build the stage upon which the magic dances. The magic is the fun stuff. The humor, the themes, the dialogue, the energy, the philosophy, the tone, the emotion, the romance, the delight. The magic is the important stuff. And I'd like to come out right now and say the Outlander has always been rife with magic. The magic is why we come to this story, and both the books and the TV show deliver on this. But they also deliver an insane story that often chops down the stage while the magic is dancing. Without a proper stage to dance upon, the magic gets lost. Some people in the audience can't see it anymore. What music they can hear is out of sync and tonally discordant. And after a while, no matter how good the magic is, it's going to fail to engage an audience that can't see the dance. This is what happens when the characters do things that make no sense, when the rules of the world seem to bend themselves backwards to accommodate weirdness and momentary whim. This episode, however... It's actually built a pretty good stage. I mean, first we have protagonists with a strong, clear goal to find and rescue young Ian. And we have an antagonist with a strong, clear goal to find the missing Sapphire and get her prophecy. In order for a structure to work well, these two goals need to be in conflict, mutually exclusive. If one wins, then the other must lose. Since Galus's goal really has nothing to do with young Ian, at least at this point, this part of it is weak. But having all the people involved chasing after strong, clear goals is still a plus, and it works to keep this story moving. We motivate Jamie and Claire to get to the party. We motivate Galus to get that sapphire. We motivate the Campbells through Archibald's ravenous greed. And young Ian is in Galus's clutches, so even though the goals aren't mutually exclusive, not yet, getting young Ian away from Galus is going to present a challenge. It works. It's not perfect, but it works. And it gives the magic a stage upon which to dance. So let's talk about the magic, the fun that is to be had in the Bakra. Well, it certainly is a pleasure to finally meet the love that was his... Every heartbeat. 
The sudden appearance of Lord John as the newly ensconced governor of Jamaica is, granted, a dubious product of the Gabaldonian coincidence machine, which is working hard for its wages in this episode. But damn it, I don't care. It's worth the unlikeliness to see all this lovely, subtle subtext working between these three as they all meet up. Jamie obviously has a great deal of affection and respect for Lord John, and we all know how Lord John feels about Jamie. This is also patently obvious to Claire, who is back to being her old perceptive self as the three of them reunite, with so much unsaid, and yet spoken pretty clearly. The complexity of the relationships between these three is beautifully expressed through the acting. And while we were plagued with a false love triangle throughout the early run of Outlander, this is a real one. One in which all of the parties are people we like. And even though there's no chance of anything happening between Lord John and Jamie, it doesn't matter. These two men share a deep connection. And whether it's a threat to Claire's relationship with Jamie or not, it's clearly something with which she is not entirely comfortable. At the same time, there's a clear sense of chemistry between Lord John and Claire. Not sexual chemistry, but personal chemistry. They like each other, and they have a lot in common. They're both smart, charming, perceptive, and capable. And they're both desperately in love with one James Alexander Malcolm Mackenzie Fraser. We've met before, you know, before the rising. In a barn, just outside. Coriaric? You defended my virtue. Come now, we both know your virtue is not in jeopardy. The fact that this love triangle doesn't present a threat to the central relationship isn't a problem. The fact that we love everyone involved, that we hurt for Lord John Gray's desire for something he can never have, that's what makes it work. It's heartbreaking and wonderful. And man, I just want Lord John to find a nice man who can make him happy. A nice man who isn't married to Claire, I mean. She's a touch strange, isn't she? You have no idea. Galus has been wonderfully weird and beautifully batshit from the first moment she stepped onto the Outlander stage wearing that wild, frothy scarf made from the shredded dreams of fairies. And she continues to be just as wonderfully insane now. In the first season, she wasn't an antagonist so much as a wonderful side player. Someone to stir up trouble and keep things interesting as the main story between Jamie and Claire played out. But now, our little melon of insanity has ripened into a fully realized antagonist. And it's fun to watch her swing on the vine, ready to drop and explode all over everything. From the moment she emerges from the bath of goat's blood, which, you know, we all know is the blood of the virgins you've raped and murdered, Bathory, let's not be coy, to her appearance at the ball and her crazy plan to get her hands on the third sapphire, which just happens to be attached to Lord John Gray's waistcoat, Galus is a giddy little time bomb just waiting to go off. And for those of you who noted her new name, Abernathy, and who remember the odd little scene with the skeleton in Joe's office, good for you. <laughs> Do you remember when we were like that? It's so obvious in public. Hey, can you keep your hands off me? Of course you were holding on from the back of the horse for most of the time, so it couldn't be helped. No matter what anyone says about Outlander, it is primarily a romance, and not just between our two main players, but also among the bit players. As Jamie and Claire's years of romantic torment appear to be behind them, we bring in love stories for our secondary characters that are also a lot of fun. 
But first, let's not forget the couple at the center of it all. Jamie and Claire are still in love, still connected, and still hot for each other. After 20 years, that's no small thing, and it makes them as a team so much fun to watch. Also hopping on the Outlander love train are Fergus and Marsley, who don't have very much to do in this episode, but what time they have together is still just lovely and fun. And then we get this lovely surprise from Margaret Campbell and Yi Tian Cho. You are a rare soul. And you are rarer still. What does that mean? Flower from heaven. After his speech in the doldrums about his love of women, this is especially sweet. Well, if you forget the misogynistic ranting, which I'm happy to do. A love between two outcasts is a wonderful thing to behold. And for poor Margaret and our beleaguered Yi Tian Cho, neither of them have had exactly the best time of it this season. And it's a nice moment of sweet respite. I go this way. Be safe. Go go with you. There are some things we should address while we're here because issues of racism are a problem in the book and a challenge for the TV show to present responsibly while still staying faithful to the book. In the book, we had a lot of troublesome material with the treatment of Yi Tian Cho and later with the dealings with the slave trade in Jamaica, and it's not an easy needle to thread. Racism is a thing. It's a real thing, and it's as real today as it ever was in the past. An honest look at what did happen in the past is not a problem. Depicting racist characters and racist actions is not a problem. That the woman at the ball treats Yi Tian Cho like an exotic talking monkey is not a problem. It's what we do with that material that can lead to the problem. One of the big issues in modern storytelling, as told by predominantly white people, is that we end up with the story of the great white savior. All our heroes are good white people who want to help, and they end up saving the poor victims of racism, Yi Tian Cho and Temeraire specifically. And then the white audience gets to feel really good about the good white people, while the victims of racism often become the holders of the beatified spotlight that shines upon, well, us. And don't at me with not all white people. The problem is, yes, a lot of white people. And until that's not the case, the not all argument will get no truck with me. Rarely are the victims of brutal racism presented as characters in their own right. Rarely do they have their own agency. Rarely are they anything other than a stitched together collection of stereotypes and shallow affectations. The real point of it all, after all, is how good our good white people are. So all we need from our victims is that they be of color and that they have a nice steady hand for holding that spotlight on us. We've managed to mostly dodge this bullet with Yi Tian Cho. In the TV show, we've taken the best of him and made him better with a couple of brief and regrettable moments, the introduction of him assaulting the Scottish prostitute and the misogynistic rant aboard the Artemis. Yi Tian Cho's genuine interest in Margaret Campbell is touching, and when he's treated like an exotic monkey by that partygoer, we see it as reprehensible. The implicit and explicit message in the storytelling is, so far, pretty good. And the more we call him Yi Tian Cho, and the less we call him Willoughby, the better it gets. Temeraire moves dangerously close to being simply a shiner of the great white spotlight, except for this. In the end, it is Temeraire who is the architect of his own rescue. 
He finds the freed slave camp, and he finds his own way to it. Claire's outburst at the slave market and Jamie's purchase of him and their willing release of him is secondary to his own primary agency. And while we do get a whiff of the great white savior in this part of the story, it's handled in about as good a way as it can be while being at all faithful to the source material. The presentation of the slave market has some problems from a story standpoint. In a story, different elements have different weights, which are determined by the power of the human drama that they hold. When Jamie and Claire first meet, that has a light weight to it. It's important. We know that right away, but it's just the beginning. They fall in love. She tries to escape to Frank. He rescues her from the clutches of Black Jack Randall. She gets taken as a witch. He brings her to Craig Nadun to send her back to Frank. All of these have higher dramatic weights than the event before it, and higher dramatic weights than anything else around them. Our focus is always on the element of highest dramatic weight. A slave market has a huge dramatic weight, both for the characters and for us as viewers. To have something with this much dramatic weight function as a side story in our main story feels like we're dismissing the cruelty and inhumanity as something secondary. It makes the balance of the story feel a little off. Yes, we're worried about young Ian, but each of these human people in cages are someone else's young Ian, and their future looks a hell of a lot bleaker than his. This isn't easy stuff, and it isn't easy to deal with. To be honest, as a white person, I feel a bit out of my depth in this, because what am I doing? Talking about this? Shining a spotlight on what a good white person I am for seeing it? But we have to talk about these things. We have to acknowledge them. And if that means that my choice is between looking like an asshole or ignoring it, well, I'd rather look like an asshole. All right, that'll do it for today. And that's almost it for season three of Outlander. Join me Sunday, December 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern using the hashtag SawChip for a live tweet of the broadcast of the season finale on Stars, And I'll see you right afterward with my thoughts on season three, episode 13, Eye of the Storm. Slange Sex and Whiskey is a chipperish media production and is entirely funded by passionate story lovers like you. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you can become a chipperish media supporter.